Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning into this series, which focuses on rural health in the Midwest. Over 10 episodes, we talk with people in a variety of communities about their experiences and perspectives on rural life, employment, and health. Our aim is to deepen understanding of the complexity of rural life and celebrate rural areas. We're so happy you're listening and learning along with us. My name is Hannah Schultz, and I work at the Midwestern Public Health Training Center at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I am your host and producer for this series discussing rural health in the Midwest. Throughout today's episode, and actually the full series, we're going to talk about rural health in the Midwest in other broad terms, but we haven't and don't plan to define these words. Instead, we let our guests decide what is rural, what is health, and we don't even get into what is the Midwest. In my not very humble nor well-reasoned opinion, the Midwest is Iowa and any state that borders it, and you would not believe the amount of debates this has started with my friends or uh, husband from Michigan and other states that consider themselves to be Midwestern. So we're not going to poke that bear, and we'll consider the Midwest with the broadest possible interpretation. That being said, the huge majority of the people we'll talk with over the next several weeks are from Iowa. In the first two episodes of this series, we're going to talk pretty broadly about rural life. Later on in the series, we'll get a bit more focused, but we thought it was really important to lay the groundwork for those later conversations by featuring some stories and perspectives that highlight the diversity of the rural experience. Okay, enough from me. We're going to start today's episode talking with Imar Hernandez. Imar lives in Ottumwa, Iowa, which is a town of about 25,000 people. Ottumwa is a hub for Southeast Iowa. By Iowa standards, it's a big town, even a small city, but it has a lot of rural qualities. Ottumwa has a lot of cool things going for it. I encourage you to check out the forthcoming podcast, Active Ottumwa, A Community on the Move. I'm a bit biased as I am the producer and host for that series as well, but it includes a lot of inspiring people and stories, including Emar. Back to today's episode. Ottumwa is actually Iowa's 20th largest city, which puts it in the top 3% of Iowa towns by population. But the interesting thing is that some folks consider it rural and some consider it a city. Remember a minute ago when I said we weren't going to define rural? I started out asking Imar how long he's been in Ottumwa and what he likes about his town. Well, I've been living here straight for um, 18 years. I was here before that too, but uh, I've been permanently here for 18 years. And again, I uh, I like this town. It's always giving me opportunity. I like the size. I don't like big cities. I grew up in a big city, and I don't I don't like um, the size of big cities. I don't mind visiting, but I don't like living on them. And so I think this is a uh, safe community, small enough where you get a little bit of small life, um, small town life, but big enough where you almost feel like you're in a big city. Um, and so I, I like um, the amenities that it provides. It, it provides pretty much everything that I, that I would need in terms of retail, uh, in terms of amenities, parks. We have one of the largest park systems in the state. Um, 
and good healthcare, uh, good diversity. Uh, they, we were just remodeling our whole downtown, so uh, that's going to be very, very nice. Uh, that was they used to be. That was like number one thing that uh, residents and visitors complain about was the state of the downtown, and so we've invested uh, multiple years of renovations, and that's coming due next week. It's when we open our three blocks that we've been remodeling downtown. So um, this accessibility, I can ride my bicycle to work. I can you know, walk to work if I wanted to. Um, everything is within walking or biking distance in the city. Um, and just it's a safe community. I think it's a safe community and, and I really like the diversity. It seems like the people who live here um, like the size of the city in terms of um, that it's not too big and it's not too small. And so most of the people here uh, that I know or that I work with come from bigger communities and they just like the slower pace maybe of the smaller community, um, you know, that you don't have as, as much traffic that you can get it everywhere in town in 10 minutes but that you still have the majority of the uh, amenities and resources that you will have in a big town. When I think Otamwa or a small community anymore, I just think the way I explain Otamwa is just like if you would think it was a neighborhood in Des Moines or in Iowa City or in Cedar Rapids. I mean, if you think about it, it's 25,000 people with their infrastructure, with their lives, with their struggles, and they're thriving. And it could just be just a uh, copy and paste from a neighborhood in, in a bigger city. Imar and I talked a bit about employment opportunities in Otemwa. I thought it was interesting that he didn't mention agriculture or farming, but he does talk about some farming adjacent careers like the John Deere plant and corn syrup production, which of course spurs other industry. Obviously, once you drive us out of Tamwa, it's, you know, farmland like the rest of the state. Um, and we do have a lot of our uh, economy here in Tamwa that is of, that, that works around uh, economies such as John Deere, you know, they build the tractors um, or uh, Cargill, they make the corn syrup. Uh, and so they're supporting industries um, that that leave from the agriculture, but they're not necessarily the main producers. That is an issue. If you're low, um, if you don't have enough education, there's only really one main employer, which is JPS, which is the meat plant. Uh, if you get fired from there and you don't have high school or any other education, then it is a little tough to find a good paying job. I mean, what's left is probably retail or, or food service. Uh, and so there's not much diversity when it comes to um, to jobs that do not require uh, high school or college education. So and we've always been aware of that. Um, but other than that, we have John Deere. We have a community college that's based here. The campus, the main campus is here. We have a regional hospital. That's the biggest hospital in probably in 15 counties around. Uh, and then we have an industrial airport that uh, has some manufacturing, uh, including uh, the Dr. Pepper plant for the state. Um, 
and so there's other smaller manufacturing but a lot of services um, that bring being a hub in terms of social security office and workforce office and DHS office just the basic uh, offices that you don't see anywhere else in smaller communities around us so um, I would say between the community college and the manufacturing and John Deere, JBS, those are probably the main employers. You know, that has to do with agriculture. We have, uh, in Eddyville, we have the largest state plant uh, producing uh, corn syrup uh, in the state. And so uh, that is the reason why they're here uh, and other companies as well. So um, there's a bottling, uh, there's a company that makes the bottles per se, it's here as well. So there's a lot of satellites, you know, companies that service those big ones. I think uh, JBS and Midpoint has, I don't know how many companies around it that supply uh, supply work to the main factory. So uh, lots of supporting jobs. Emar comments on the role of manufacturing in rural communities. We hear this several times throughout the series. Manufacturing is huge across Iowa, and it's not just food production. Custom fire trucks, built in Iowa. Grizzly coolers, yep. Windows, Iowa again. Even racing wheels that are used by NASCAR are made in Iowa. I think that's a myth as well, because for example, you know, you go to Mount Pleasant, uh, very close here, very manufacturing-based community. Uh, you know, you go to, to other communities like Lenox, you're just manufacturing towns uh, as well. They, they have to do with agriculture, but um, I mean, th I think there's a reason why these communities exist of our size out there in the middle of nowhere is to support uh, the agriculture out there as well. People choose to live in rural communities for all sorts of reasons. They stay and come back because they like rural life. In the third episode of this series, we'll talk with Emily Warnell about who lives in rural communities, and she will reiterate a point Imar makes. People choose to live in a community based on the characteristics of that community. A few weeks after we talk with Emily, we'll talk with Rachel Goss, who calls herself a super commuter. She drives more than an hour each way to her office in Des Moines so she can live in a rural community. I was looking at the uh, data this morning, and for example, Otamoa has a younger population than the state average. Uh, which is something you don't think of rural communities. You think, oh, they must be older. They must be, you know, shrinking. They must be dying. And uh, they said Otamo has three years uh, younger than the state average. Um, so we're younger population that compared to the rest of the state. And so that is also a misperception that is for rural communities. They're dying. They're small. They're uh, older population. And and there's some some maybe some data that supports that, but there's lots of data that supports. And that's not a, a true 100% picture uh, of a rural community. I just did an action plan with an organization last week, and they said everybody was in 100% agreement after doing looking at data and looking at what we have and what we don't have, that we have plenty of resources here to meet the needs of everybody in our community. And so how do we make sure that those resources are distributed uh, make sure that everybody has access to those resources is the question, not whether we have them, the resources or not. And so we just have to get a little bit smarter uh, about how we make sure that people have access, equal access to, to resources. It is true, you know, for at least in South, Southern Iowa, that we are the poorest uh, in the state. We, we know that, that's, a, that's there. 
Um, on the other side, we are the most affordable places to live in the state, you know. So um, it depends of what, what you want to look at in terms of, you know, terms of success or what you're looking at. Uh, I mean, if you look at the prices of homes down here or rent, um, you can make a decent uh, living, um, you know, versus finding maybe um, if you're not, whatever you make in a bigger community. So uh, even I've heard uh, of communities even close to us, like Pella, where you can rent an apartment for $1,300, or you can rent a house if, you know, a three bedroom house in Ottawa for $1,300. So, uh, you know, it's just what you're looking for. Um, Doesn't mean that one is correct and the other one is not. It just depends on what you're looking at. In Ottawa, I know Wapolo County has far more, and I looked at it this morning as well, has far more Democrats uh, registered than Republicans. Now there's a lot of independents and they tend to to go back and forth depending on who, who the candidate they like. But if you just looked at registered voters, um, you know, that can be true in one county, not necessarily in the county next over. So it just depends on which community you're looking at. But I think one mistake is that we group all these communities into one and say they're all X and, um, and name them as if they were equal. And they're not, they're all different, just like urban communities are all different from one another. I'm really excited to talk about the diversity in Ottumwa. This is another theme that we will hear throughout this series. Many small communities across our region are very diverse. As Christy Nabhan Warren will tell us in a few minutes, the Midwest is a deeply global place. Through my conversations with Imar and others from Ottumwa over the last few months, I'm convinced that Ottumwa has one of the best food scenes in Iowa, if not the whole Midwest. Emer will mention LULAC, which is the League of United Latin American Citizens. LULAC works to advance the economic condition, educational attainment, political influence, housing, health, and civil rights of the Hispanic population of the United States. There are 18 LULAC councils in Iowa. Many of them are in small communities. Let's hear more. In most rural uh, communities, there's a lot of diversity, especially in Iowa, driven by agriculture, needs for agricultural employment, um, for labor force, um, meat plants, not only for only because of those, but those that maybe the, have been historically the main drivers in the last 20 years. Um, so a lot of diversity, a lot of diversity in our communities. We have seen a lot of diversification in the last, I want to say six or seven years, it used to be mainly predominantly the immigrant community used to be Latino only. Uh, but even then it was very diverse, more diverse than I hear than in other parts of the state. Like if you went to Marshalltown, it was mostly at a time, you know, Mexican origin. And here in Ottawa from the beginning was very diverse uh, of Mexican and other Central American countries. We, had a lot, we still have a lot of people from Guatemala, from El Salvador, from Honduras, from Nicaragua, from Cuba, and uh, which makes it really refreshing. Uh, but in the last six years, we've seen a lot of uh, influx from refugees from other countries, a lot of African countries, especially Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Congo. And so uh, we have a lot of those businesses as well, which is really exciting. We have two African grocery stores. We have an African restaurant. We have a lot of uh, Southeast Asian refugees, Burmese mostly, that are here. 
and they they're very entrepreneurial. I'm waiting for a restaurant. They haven't opened one yet, but we have two grocery stores from Asia, from Burma, and so very entrepreneurial, wonderful people. Um, and we have a lot of Marshallese that we're starting to see as well. So a lot of diversity, which is uh, it's always refreshing for our community. Umar is going to talk a bit about Otumwa's annual international festival, which, like so many things, was virtual in 2020. I have an image in my mind of everyone in Otumwa dancing in their living rooms. An organization here, uh, LULAC, who adopted um, the international festival that we had. It was run by another group, and when that um, went away, that group went away, then we adopted it and continued it, yeah. It's something that started, I want to say, in the late 90s, um, again, to celebrate diversity. And this is actually one of the four pillars in our city's comprehensive plan. So it's not just a bunch of us saying, we think this is good. Uh, it, the community in general, through surveys and through uh, the city itself, has recognized that this is our, one of our strengths. And that, um, so a lot of emphasis in the beginning was put into celebration of diversity. We still do that. We still have the, um, the festival every year. And we also have moved a little bit deeper than just celebrating diversity, but promoting equality, uh, promoting similar opportunities, equal opportunities. So we are, well, we are very strong celebrating diversity. We're also trying to go a little bit deeper than just celebrating. So yeah, we adopted the festival um, two years ago. Um, the group that was doing it before uh, stopped doing it and was either we took it over or it, it, would, um, or it would die. And the community was very, was clear that they wanted it to keep uh, going. And so we've had it um, three years in a row now. Uh, the last, uh, this year, we really had debated where should we do it in person? Should we cancel? Should we do it virtually? And everybody in the state canceled. And so we decided that we were gonna have it, that we, people needed to celebrate, no matter if they were you know, stuck at home or uh, aware that it was a year that needed a bright light and so we held it and after we made a decision we heard that other communities heard of us doing that and they changed um, and celebrated theirs as well um, but I hear that none of them were as successful as we were which is you know shocking even the Moines I heard didn't do as well as we did so we were just very supported from the beginning from our sponsors we raised just as much money if we would have had it uh, in person uh, we had it more attendance than we would have had it in person. Um, so it was just really, really good experience. We were able to uh, raise a lot of money, enough to cover next year expenses and enough to do the scholarships that we wanted to do. And um, even though we are a organization that is focused on Latino advancement, we were clear from the beginning that we wanted these to remain an international conference, an international festival, and that we that we were inclusive and that we celebrated diversity in general, not just the Latino culture. So we were very we're very very happy, uh, and that we're just hoping that we can go back to 
to normal. Just dancing by yourself is just not as fun. One of the things that we are very mindful is that as LULAC, we are obviously, again, focused on the Latino population, but we have been, we want to be allies of any diversity efforts in the community. And so I know this has been a very tough year um, in terms of um, uh, racial conversations and um, equality and, and equity and another term, inclusion. And so I have seen a lot happen in Otamoa, just probably like in every other community, but here we, um, we started a group, Otamoa um, for Racial Justice. Um, so that's a group that started this year and it's very active. We have another group, um, LGBTQ+, so Otamoa Pride, we started this year. We didn't have that uh, before. So that's, that's a very active group and now there's a chapter, there's a community group, there's a high school group, and there's a middle school group. So that's very exciting. Um, and then tonight, actually, we have, uh, after these, I'm going to City Hall because our city council um, is uh, going to decide whether we establish a human rights, uh, civil rights committee, a commission, sorry. We used to have one long, long time ago, and then it went away. And uh, the discussion at the time for what I hear was, well, there's one at the state level. So if somebody has a problem, you, they can go to the state. And the more we talk, the different groups, you know, Tamwa is like, yes, that's okay. And we need to have one here too, so that we can advocate for our, for our citizens. If they have an issue here, if we can resolve it here before they have to go to the Moine, because the Moine is intimidating. You know, it's out of their community. It's a bigger, you know, say you have to go through paperwork. You know, if we can take care of that here, uh, if it's our police department, if it's our, you know, whatever it is, we can respond to it faster before it becomes a lawsuit, for example, or before it becomes a complaint to the attorney general. Um, and, you know, and so we have been saying that let's, it's good to have that state um, organization and that doesn't mean that we cannot have one here as well. Uh, and so, uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that, that, we, that, that goes uh, forward. I followed up with Imar to find out what is happening with the Civil Rights Commission conversation in Atumwa, and he had some good news to share. The city administrator is looking at other communities that have similar commissions and will make a report to the city council in early 2021 to help determine the next steps for Atumwa. So now we're going to hear about commitment to community development and other exciting changes he's seen in his town and among his fellow Atumwans. The biggest change I have seen is that um, when I got here, people, negativity of Otamwa, the perception, and that it was okay to just trash your town and it was okay and everybody, you know, the town looked bad and, and um, it started to change, I would want to say about eight years ago. Um, there's other things that happen. We have a new foundation in town that's really into uh, working and changing that image and change not only image wise, but also infrastructure. We have it, like I said, next week, we have three blocks of our main street gonna be reopened with brand new everything. Uh, facades, uh, streets, sidewalks, lights, everything's brand new, utilities. And so, uh, but we did a study 
about eight years ago, and it was a housing study that the city asked Iowa State to do. And it was funny because we, after a year long process, we came back and out of our 10 top recommendations, none had to do with housing. And it was an eye opener for them. It's like, but we hire you to tell us which houses to build. And we said, no, you know, everything we've heard, all the data we look at shows that unless you take care of these 10 things, no matter what house you build, people won't come. And so those things had to deal with uh, image, uh, online, uh, coming into town, going through downtown, uh, the image of the school district. The school district had an awful image and it, not a bad school district whatsoever. And this is this seems to be a recurring theme in other communities. I'll give you an example here in a little bit. But uh, so we've invested a lot in the, in the school district image in the uh, in our business district. Like, like I said, brand new everything. Uh, we have a uniform now. Um, marketing campaign in the city. So same logo. I think like other communities have done this. You know, the school district has the same logo as the city of Ottawa. They just have different color. And so we all have the same kind of uni united uh, image, uh, still showing diversity of the organizations. Um, and then yeah, I've, I've just heard somebody says, there's nothing to do here. I'm gonna tell, tell me more about that. What does that mean to you? Or when you say this, look, this town is not safe. Okay, tell me, let's talk about that because we have same or lower crime rates than other towns. So what the, why would you say that? And so we've, that's kind of the, the technique that we're using when people now say something like, okay, tell me more about that. How did that happen to you? Well, I fell in a crack uh, sidewalk. Okay, was that a public sidewalk or was that a house? Okay, it's a house. Okay, was that reported? You know, so just go deeper and eventually people come to say, okay, it's not an excuse, you know, if I didn't uh, fix it or I didn't get involved or if I didn't look for opportunities to be active in my community. Or uh, So I was teaching a leadership class in another community, a rural community smaller than Otama, probably about 12,000 or, or less. And uh, the first class, I always do this. I say, what are the biggest issues in your town? And so people name, and it was a consensus of the whole class I had, I think like I had 18 leaders of the community there, that the schools were awful. They just, they just have really bad schools. We need to fix the school problem. I said, okay, let's look at the data. And so the way we present data when we go into communities, we have, we compare them to their peers community and also to the state of Iowa. So when they looked at the data, they saw that their school district was performing uh, better than their peers, okay? So anybody, their same size, similar distance to a bigger city. And that was a very shocking experience for them. And then we went and looked at the third column. And not only were they doing better than their peers, they were doing better than the state of Iowa in general. And that was a huge eye-opening moment for them. And so I asked them, you know, what does that mean? Why would you say you have bad schools when you are over, you know, you're performing better than everybody else? And so it came down to an image issue, um, you know, the way the school communicated or that they've had, you know, one instance of, you know, a, you know, a, a student hitting another one. And so that took it to the social media and, you know, it wasn't addressed by the school. So we must have really bad schools. <laughs> Guess what? Everywhere in every school district in Iowa, there's a fight every day. And, uh, and so instead of throwing money into building a brand new school or finding a, you know, superintendent, 
what they did is they put their efforts and energy and resources on a campaign, on an image campaign, and how do they communicate with parents and how do they communicate with students? And so uh, just digging deep into that root, uh, the root of that problem. So uh, that's just an example of sometimes our communities being our worst enemies in terms of image and uh, not seeing the value that we have and the benefits that we have. Imari's last point here is so important. We internalize stereotypes and comments and too frequently allow exceptions to make the rule. Atemwa and so many other communities like it have so much going for them. Now we're going to hear from Christine Afghan Warren. Christie is an anthropologist of religion and is faculty in the Religious Studies and Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies departments at the University of Iowa. Christie is unique among our guests for this series. She's a researcher and she doesn't currently live in a rural area. She does spend a lot of time in rural communities. I'm excited to share her research with you. She does research to contest narratives that white Americans hold close about rural areas, and her work reinforces the reality I mentioned a few minutes ago that the Midwest is a deeply global place. Navian Warren grew up in Gary, Indiana, and now lives in Iowa City. She spent most of her time in the Midwest, and she now does research in and with folks living in rural areas. I asked her why she chose to live in Iowa City rather than a rural community, given that she spends a good deal of her time in rural areas. We actually seriously considered West Branch or West Liberty. Um, my first two years teaching here, um, so I, I taught at Augustana College for 10 years, which is about an hour away in Illinois. And I got this job offer and um, my husband had yet to get a job offer here and our kids were young and we were in a great neighborhood in Rock Island, which is a very diverse community. Those of you familiar with Rock Island, um, our kids went to a magnet school there and there were uh, more black American kids and Latino kids at their school. So our kids were actually minorities and we loved that. So it was hard to think about leaving Rock Island. And so I commuted the first two years um, to Iowa City I, uh, about three days a week. And it, it was it was pretty exhausting because the kids were young and I was coaching my one son's soccer team and it was just crazy. I drive from a full day to go coach on soccer field. It was a little nutty. But anyway, when once my husband was hot, got a job at Iowa City, we, we committed to moving here with the kids. We were like, okay, where are we going to want to live? Because yeah, I mean, West Liberty was really appealing because um, it's not technically rural, but they have an incredible dual language program that was really appealing to us. We looked into Solon, we looked into West Branch at the time we were going to Quaker meeting there, which we really love the Quaker community there. Um, I think what it honestly came down to is we didn't want to commute. Um, I bike to work. Uh, so it was kind of like, what is the most important thing? And I think um, for us, it, I, I think after those two years of commuting, uh, I just didn't want to drive anymore. So um, when we were looking for a house, it had to be biking distance. So we're about a 15, 20 minute bike ride uh, from our home to campus. The schools were appealing, but to be honest with you, the West Liberty schools in some ways were more appealing because I don't, our kids probably won't be bilingual or have dual language now. Um, Iowa City does not I love the Iowa City school system, but um, I do think the language program has something to be desired here. So I will be critical of it. Uh, and I think if we would have moved to West Liberty, um, yeah, that that would have happened. So, yeah, I mean, I think we were definitely open to it. In fact, we did look at a home that was on 10 acres. That would have been about a half 35 minute drive um, to campus. 
But I think that's what it came down to. We just didn't want to have to rely on a car. So our, our environmentalism and how we wanted to live, not be car dependent, um, that trumped living in rural America. But I find it, still find it very appealing. And we actually talk, Steve and I talk a lot, my husband and I, once the kids are out of the house. But now we just, we love being able to bike. We like being able to go downtown, go to the museums. Well, now in COVID, it's a little harder. I think it's the accessibility and being close to things that we really value. I think anyone who has ever had a long commute can understand her family's decision to live in Iowa City. Christy's style of research is sometimes called ethnography, sometimes community-engaged research, and many other things, depending on the scholar's discipline. She describes more about what she does and how she works. When we look at um, the statistics, yes, Iowa is a white state compared to other places, but and this is something that I learned with my research with me, in meatpacking plants. And so in my current research, my books, my new book's coming out next fall, 2021, I was really interested in unpacking what scholars call the intersectionalities of migration, religion, and work, and trying to understand the new migrations, right? Because there's been a lot written on post-1965 migration, um, but not like really, really recent migration. And there's been a real bias in the scholarship towards the coast, right? Or big Midwestern cities. We've had quite a few really good studies on like Chicago, for example, but none on rural Midwest. And so, yes, my work is, I'm very much pushing back against tropes of the Midwest being a flyover, Iowa in particular being a flyover state, that we're lily white, that we don't have diversity, that we're this and that we're that. And I think that's, that as much as I love journalists and I love journalists' writings and I read a lot of their books and articles and assign them to my students, I think that we need to move beyond what I would call like hot takes and do more cold takes. And that's, the, that's what scholars, that's what we can contribute. Community-engaged research is going to people uh, in their homes, um, where the places of work, places where they worship, and um, I, I conduct interviews. Um, a lot of times these interviews end up leading to more interviews and then friendships. And then um, these interviews, community-based research that I do, ends up becoming very transformative, I think, for myself, for my students. I bring this research to my classes, um, to the way I see the world. Um, so I guess it, that's such a great question because I've been thinking about this a lot. I've always called myself an ethnographer, an anthropologist of religion, but increasingly I'm saying who also does social justice work and who does community-based research. And, I, and I've been thinking a lot about how important it is to say that. So for me, it's more than just talking to people and recording what they say. It's, it's, it's getting research out there, but research that I, I hope can help impact the lives of the folks I'm, I've been privileged enough to interview in positive ways. And hopefully the research that I put out there, um, the books I write, the articles I write can help make some positive constructive changes and push those in power and control like corporations to be motivated to, to make some changes. I've always worked with US Latinos, primarily Mexicanos, Mexican Americans, but increasingly um, for this new book project, um, I had the privilege of working with a, many more refugees from you know, the DNC, uh, Myanmar, Burma, Vietnam, Cambodia, um, 
Somalia. And so I've always been drawn to communities who have been oppressed, forgotten, um, as a scholar of, as a non-Catholic who does Catholic studies, I've always been really drawn to Latino Catholicism. And so that's how I sort of got my start as a scholar. Um, those are the first individuals I was privileged enough to work with. Um, and I always ask myself, what would it look like if we centered the experiences of people who have always been marginalized, right? Whether it's, you know, Mexican Americans, whether it's Somalians, Sudanese, Congolese, what would it look like if we centered, if we started the story with their experiences, you know, and, and then worked outward from there. And so, yeah, I think my whole, the whole span of my research has been deeply informed by my encounters and engagements. Um, I've always been an outsider, really. I've, I'm a non-Catholic who has spent a lot of my career working with Catholics. Um, I'm a white, um, ethnically Lebanese, Swedish, Polish woman. My dad's side's Lebanese, my mom's side's Polish. So I, I, I'm very unlike the folks I work with. And doing the kind of community-based scholarship that I've done has really woken me up in a very real way to my own white privilege. I mean, I think it's easy to say, oh, we have white privilege. But I mean, when you do this kind of work, I think it just has, it has to become transformative, right? It's really woken me up to the hard realities. And I've had to really sit with that right? The ways that I have been privileged because of my whiteness, right? And the ways, and then what can I do with my privilege as a white woman, tenured professor at a major research university? How can I use those privileges to help, I don't want to say help in a kind of trite way, but to pay it forward, to give back. I'm, I'm sort of lacking the right language right now. Those communities that have given me so much and that give so much to us, you know, uh, the United States. What I've learned in the course of my research is that refugee, and, and in, my, in my work, I call all these individuals refugees, whether or not they have the legal status, all of these individuals from the Northern, whether it be the Northern Triangle, um, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Mexico, whether they're recognized refugees, I mean, most of these folks are not, right? Uh, those from the DNC, um, Congolese are recognized as, as refugees. So whether they're technically recognized as refugees or not, I call all these individuals refugees because they're fleeing something for something. And none of the folks that I interviewed wanted to leave their homes. These are men and women from around the world who are living in our state, in Iowa, who are making major contributions to their, their towns, they're revitalizing downtowns, whether it be restaurants, cultural centers, um, painting their homes bright, beautiful colors, planting flowers, they're working in meatpacking plants. And you know where you find meatpacking plants in the Midwest and in our state, so too you will find the most diverse communities, right? And so Columbus Junction, Iowa, West Liberty, Iowa, Waterloo, right? Perry, all of these places. And now we, we read a lot of negative things since COVID outbreaks. And let's be honest, these plants have not handled, these corporations have not handled the COVID outbreaks well. They've been very late to come to the PPEs, per personal protective equipment. So what I'm really interested in is not just like economically what these individuals are bringing to their communities because they most certainly are but like culturally what they're bringing to them and indeed you know we you know there are racist outbursts you know we had steve king for example um that's the stuff that we hear in the news and that's real and i don't want to dismiss 
the danger of racist discourse and dialogue because it's alive and well in our country as we know. And that's a story that we need to talk about. But what I'm trying to tell in my work is another story learned from community engaged research. Um, people in towns like white folks were like, yeah, you know, I was, I really didn't like these new migrants at first, but yeah, I'm really, you know, I really think that they bring a lot to our community. And so sometimes it's begrudging acceptance, but acceptance nonetheless. And so what I would like to see uh, more scholars do and just more people in general is to look beyond the hot takes that we see in the news uh, and to really explore what's really going on in the Midwest. And that's what I think community-based research, to go back to your first question, can do. Long sustained research where we embed ourselves in communities, we sit down for coffee. Again, all my research for this book was done pre-COVID, sitting down for a lot of coffees, a lot of meals, a lot of conversations. Christy is going to talk about Art Cullen from Storm Lake, Iowa, another meatpacking industrial town. Art is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and has written a book about his community. We'll be hearing from him a few times throughout this series. I like his book, Storm Lake, because he really tries to lay this out, too, is that, you know, these are complicated places, you know, um, and let's really, let's really talk about, like, white Americans, native-born white Americans, really wrestling with their own inherited racism and really wrestling with the fact that they really appreciate their new neighbors, but they've, they've internalized that they shouldn't like these new neighbors. And I, I think it's, it's so much more complex than we're led to believe in the news. And, and I like, that's one thing I really appreciate about arts work. And there are more scholars looking at the Midwest now as really like complex laboratories. And what I try to argue in my new, in my new book um, is that, the Midwest is a deeply global place and it really is a hub where we can look at, um, you know, shifts in, you know, the new migrations work. I think it's a really interesting place, a really dynamic and vibrant place to look at. Um, I'm really hoping that we can get rid of this whole lexicon of flyover because I think there's a lot of richness in, in places like Iowa and I am not a native born Iowan. So I, I don't have like an ax to grind, you know, like, oh, my state's awesome because I, I'm fairly new to Iowa. And I feel, I do strongly feel like Iowa, there's a lot going on here that I think um, is the future of the country in a lot of ways. And I think we need to reckon with it. One of the interesting things about Christy bringing art into this conversation is that they have some similar arguments about rural communities and the racist reputation rural white America has. Because I have a Catholic studies position, I was really committed to understanding Catholic parishes. And Catholic parishes historically have always been pretty diverse places. They've always been segregated places too, though. There's that, there's that definite racialized racist history of, of most religious organizations in the United States. But I wasn't really under I was really interested because I was reading up on the new migrations to Iowa and how many of these migrants are Catholic. So I, I had three different parishes that I was where I was conducting field work. And initially I really wanted to study rural parishes and under, because that's where most of these migrants and refugees live. They live in rural Iowa and they're going to these rural churches, in this case, Catholic parishes. So it was really under, I was really interested originally, the focus of this project was understanding how Catholic parishes were or were not dealing with the new migrations. Are these post-racial spaces? Are these, as what some sociologists call them, shared parishes? Are they, what are they? What's going on here? 
And what became, uh, it became a much bigger project um, because one of the priests I worked with in Columbus Junction said, you know, you really should go to the meatpacking plants because that's where all of the individuals I was talking to, that's where all of them work. They work at Tyson. And so that's how I got into the meatpack. That's that's a meatpacking plant component. I really wanted to understand um, their work lives and how they carry their faith with them into the workplace. I think these are much more complicated places. I think it's easy to say that it's just a bunch of racist white people. And I think that that's a really unnuanced, unsophisticated argument that I hear a lot in the news and even academics making that argument. Uh, and so I think I'm really drawn, my whole career, I've been really drawn to pushing back on narratives. And this is one of the narratives that I wanna contest that rural places are X, Y, and Z. And what I wanna show is, well, maybe there's some truth to that, but it's also this. And so I think for me as a scholar, rural spaces are really fruitful, literally, pun intended, uh, really fruitful places for contesting those narratives that we hold very dear as Americans, as white Americans. We're gonna end our time with Christy talking about farmers and agricultural workers. Later on, we'll have a full episode on food systems and we'll talk about rural employment and community sustainability. But I like what Christy says here, and I think it's a good note to end with. I think another thing too, I know I have a lot of white Iowa students who are from farms. I think there's this idea, this mythopoetics, if you will, of like farming families and, and that they have this kind of stability. Farming families are really suffering. And, you know, most farm families have, you know, husbands and wives work up second jobs. You know, most farmers that I've where I, I haven't worked with that many farmers for this project, but I have worked with farmers, interviewed farmers. And, you know, I've met wives who are teachers and also get up at four in the morning to feed the, the pigs and to get things ready. And so I think this idea, this myth, you know, of like the, I mean, these families are amazing families, right? But that these families aren't struggling. I mean, I think like the farm crisis, yes, it was in the eighties. But I think we have a new crisis and I think the current administration's policies have hurt farmers even more. What I've really learned is like, wow, I mean, it's really freaking hard to be a farmer. I mean, and it's like, there's such a commitment and passion to the history and to generations. I mean, so I've gained a real appreciation for farm families doing this work. Um, my work is mostly focused on meat packing and that labor, but I've also had the privilege to interview some farmers too and cattle ranchers just how hard these folks work and they don't really make a lot. I mean, it's really a vocation. And so, I mean, farming, what I've learned is farming is really a vocation and it's, it's like a calling and there's, there's this like commitment to family and generations that just, I find very, very moving. Um, and one of my colleagues, uh, Robert Wuthnow, he's now retired, he's emeritus at Princeton. Bob, uh, Robert Wuthman has some really good books out on, on farming and religion. And I'm not as much of an expert as he is, but he has some, he's from the Midwest. I think he's from Kansas, but he has some really great books about farming and faith and, and the Midwest and faith. Uh, so I gained a real appreciation um, of farming. And I think it's, it's a story that we don't know enough about how much these farmers are struggling um, I think rural America is a lot more diverse than we thought. I think it's a place that's very precarious. Um, there's a lot of precarity, economic precarity. 
white folks, brown folks, black, black folks are struggling in, in rural Iowa and rural America. And, um, and I think that, that that's, that's an issue that we need to think about, you know, policy wise, um, what can scholars do to draw attention to this? What can we do um, to help rural America and, and farmers? That wraps up today's episode of Share Public Health. I hope you'll join us next week. We'll talk with Mary Sponder, who lives outside of Kelowna, Iowa, Art Colum from Storm Lake, and Heather Lujano from Washington. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Share Public Health. Thank you to the Injury Prevention Research Center, Iowa's Center for Agricultural Safety and Health, the Healthier Workforce Center of the Midwest, the Heartland Center for Occupational Health and Safety, the Great Plains Center for Agricultural Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center, the Prevention Research Center for Rural Health, and the Rural Policy Research Institute. The theme song for this series is Walk Along John. It's performed by Al Murphy on fiddle, Mark Jansen on mandolin, Brandy Jansen on banjo, Warren Hanlon on guitar, and Aletta Murphy on bass. Al learned these songs from a fiddler named Delbert Spray, who is from Cahoka, Missouri. A transcript, evaluation, and discussion guide for this episode are available at mphtc.org and in the podcast notes.